0: I want to begin by reading something to you. It's got some humor to it, but there's more more of the reason behind why I want to read it to you than just the humor, because for some of you in listening to this, it might even offend a little bit. So I'm going to give you that disclaimer right up front, because it offended me a little bit. But I'm processing through, and, and I was thinking about where we're at in the book of Ecclesiastes. So let me let me just read this to you. It came in an email form to me today. In her radio show, Dr. Laura Schlesinger said that as an observant Orthodox Jew, homosexuality is an abomination according to Leviticus 18.22 and cannot be condoned under any, any circumstance. The following response is an open letter to Dr. Laura penned by a U.S. resident which was posted on the Internet. Dear Dr. Laura... Thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's laws and how to follow them. Leviticus twenty-five forty-four states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans but not Canadians. Can you clarify? Why can't I own Canadians? Secondly, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21, verse 7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Number three, I'm going to skip. Number four, (laughs) when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors, they claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself or should I ask the police to do it? (laughs) The laughter is getting less and
1: less.
0: (laughs) A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11 verse 10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Are there degrees of abomination? Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 1927, how should they die? I know from Leviticus 11 verses 6 through 8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves?)
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus nineteen nineteen by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife, by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Leviticus twenty four, verses ten through sixteen. Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? Leviticus twenty verse fourteen. I know you have studied these things extensively and thus enjoy considerable expertise in such matters, so I'm confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your adoring fan, James M. Kaufman, Ed D., Professor Emeritus, Department of Curriculum Instruction and Special Education, University of Virginia. And he, his postscript is, it would be a darn shame if we couldn't own a Canadian. (laughs) So there's some humor in that. And there's some offense in that because obviously what he's trying to do is undermine the legitimacy of the Word of God. But you know, it was interesting, I read that after studying this week and I'm reminded once again that the secular humanist has a completely different way of looking at the world. And he's writing from the perspective of a secular humanist. And he's coming at it from the perspective not understanding, by the way, if you want to be technical... As of A.D. 70, when the temple was burned and the altar destroyed, the Jewish law became defunct. It's not keepable anymore. Dr. Laura doesn't even recognize that. You cannot keep Jewish law. It's over. It's, it, and when I say unkeepable, well, yeah, you can keep Sabbath and, um, and some of the various laws. You know, you can try and keep your food kosher and do things like that. But the ultimate expression of the Jewish law bound in sacrifice cannot be kept. So right there, to to go nitpicking through these little things, completely pole vaults over the bigger issue of sacrifice, which is unkeepable. Clearly, this guy doesn't understand that. But beyond that, something we have got to get used to as Christians is the mindset of the secular world. Not to join, you know, be in the world, not of the world. But the mindset and and the way a secular humanist thinks, and maybe the best way to start that is with some definition. Because we're talking about secular humanism and the fact that Kohalath, Solomon in disguise, puts on the mask of the secular humanist. Well, what exactly does that mean? Let's be clear of our definitions. Number one, the word secular. What does the word secular mean? It comes from the Latin seculum, which means the world. And so secular literally is pertaining to this present world or worldly. To be secular is to be worldly, non-religious, at least in terms of uh, spiritual things. That's secular. The word humanism. Now this is interesting and it gets more interesting. Humanism is a doctrine, an attitude Or a way of life centered on human interests or values especially. A philosophy that usually rejects supernaturalism and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. That's humanism. But note, and this is out of Webster's Dictionary today. I went back to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, just curious what it would say about humanism there. Humanism isn't isn't a word in that dictionary. It didn't exist. It is a doctrine. Interesting. A doctrine? That sounds religious. Listen to Webster's secular humanism definition. Humanistic philosophy viewed as a non-theistic religion. It's a system of belief, which is antagonistic to traditional religion. Secular humanism is in and of itself a religion. It is a belief system. It is a worldview in the same way that Christianity is a worldview, only secular humanism says there is no supernatural. It is only the world. It's only the natural and what man can self-realize, self-actualize in this present world. Whereas Christianity as a belief system says, no, there is a supernatural realm. And the focus is on our supernatural God, Jesus Christ. And so there's obviously a big difference, but both are belief systems. And I caution you again, be careful with belief systems. Better to believe in Jesus than to rest in a system. Even when it's Christianity, because as as I said Sunday, Christianity can become vanity if it's all about getting the right answers and having the right verses and doing all the right things, but not acknowledging Jesus and the walk that you have with Him, the daily interaction that we share with Him. Please don't misunderstand me on this. I'm not saying we throw out the system of belief. I'm not saying we cast out sound doctrine. Absolutely not. And if you've been here the last eight years, I hope you know otherwise. But that our focal point, the reason for all that we believe, always has to come back to a person, not a page. Jesus Christ. And our growing and living and vibrant and active and real relationship. In the song we sang, That last definition, that last word, and now I'm already forgetting it,
1: Yahweh
0: sham. yes, yes, S-H-A-M, but it's got kind of a W sound in there, so Yahweh sham, which means the Lord is there, the Lord is present, and that's got to be our focus. We lose that and we become a system of belief, different and yet similar in some ways to humanism. So secular humanism, by definition, could be called the Church of Man. That's the mask Kohalath puts on. The mask of the church of man. It's man's search to find meaning in and of himself, and the search is futile. Let's go back and begin at the beginning of chapter 3 and work our way through it once again. A little faster this time than Sunday. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant. And a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw or cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart A time to sew together. A time to be silent. A time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And we saw Sunday morning how all these different times on the surface seem to indicate some sense of order and organization to our existence. But the truth is there's an undercurrent of life that is out of our control. We don't control our birth. We don't control our death. Even our moments of laughter, our moments of mourning, these things are out of our control. There is so much in life that is out of control. And if you stir on this for too long, if you think too much about what's really out of control in your life, what you really can control, you can design, you can take care of, it can freak you out a little bit. But it's a truth we must recognize. Verse 9 going on, he says, "...what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils?" I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate, or you know the word, beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And that's the key. You see, life is beyond my control. But just because I can't control it doesn't mean it's out of control. He makes everything beautiful in its time, He's in control. And the thing that I recognize in my walk with Jesus is I may not have a clue where we're going next, but He knows. He has it down. And He has a well-ordered plan for my life. All I have to do is listen to Him. It's very simple. From the secular humanistic mindset, if you're not believing in the One who does control everything, then life is out of control. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Remember, He made us for eternity, but He set us in time, which is the cause for so much frustration and consternation in our lives. Or perhaps not lives of people who have faith in Jesus, but so much of the frustration of life is that longing for the eternal, but that limitation of the temporal. We're here in this time set but we're made for eternity. So it's no wonder the human heart is frustrated because our meaning is not secular. Our meaning is spiritual. Verse 12 going on, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Now, Coming up to the next verses, Kohalath pokes a hole in the suffocating box of humanism. And suddenly it's like the fresh oxygen, pure and wonderful of God comes flowing in and for a moment we can breathe. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already. That which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Let me explain that a little more clearly than we did on Sunday. God seeks what has passed by. What does that mean? Listen, God is eternal and immediate. He's the great I am. He's here and now. But verse 15 is almost a repeat of something Kohala said in his opening remarks back in chapter one. Go back and look at chapter one, verse nine. Chapter 1, verse 9, in the intro, as he's calling out vanity of vanities, as he's squarely fit that mask of of humanistic secularism on his face, he says, is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new. Oops, sorry, that's verse 10. Verse (laughs) 9, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. Okay, sound familiar? But then he says, So there's nothing new under the sun. What he says there, in the position of secularism, is season gives way to season, and decade to decade, and century to century, and it just keeps rolling, and rolling, and rolling, and nothing's new. What has been will be again. What's been done is going to be done again. There's nothing new. Life repeats itself. And it's kind of sad tragic to look at the world that way. You know, here we go again in the fall of the year. And in case anybody hadn't noticed, summer's over. I hope you enjoy both days. It is full on September. It's overcast. It's cool. It's the fall of the year. This is my 47th autumn as of next week. Thank you. So here we go again. Back around again, another fall, another opportunity to start thinking about when do we have to get out the Christmas decorations, you know. (laughs) It just keeps spinning back to school, back to the same old, same old. And from the humanistic perspective, especially if you believe that the earth has been here billions and billions of years, from that perspective, wow, that produces what I would call the severity of hopelessness. It is hopeless. We are bound to repeat ourselves. We're bound to do again what was done before. It's all just going to keep going and going and going. Same thing. Just when you think you have a handle on it, it comes back around. I mean, how depressing is that? The severity of hopelessness, this unpredictable and yet predictable cycle of life. It keeps spinning around. Man still hurts man. Death still advances on life. And though climate change advocates would like to ignore it, even the earth cycles through cooling seasons and warming seasons. These larger, bigger trends that can last hundreds of years. Longer than that. Cooling trends. Where the You know, it was the 1970s where all the headlines was the earth is freezing. The earth is going cold now. Global cooling was the great fear of the 70s. And now it's global warming, and it and it really doesn't matter. You know, it's funny about that. If I if I may just rant, it doesn't matter what happens in the seasons. Global warming warming is still at fault. Have you noticed that? It's the coldest winter on record. Ah, it's because of global warming. I don't get that. <laughs> I don't understand. I'm, maybe I'm just too simple. But the bottom line is, with this perspective, the severity of hopelessness. There's nothing new under the sun. And as the bird's saying, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. That's all well and good until a new round of planes crash into the buildings and down the towers fall. We're so close to peace, we just about have it. And then war erupts. And we're right back in it. I used to think terrorism was a thing of my childhood. I remember as a kid, you know, hijackings. And then we went through a long period of time, at least in America, where that just didn't seem to be the case anymore. I guess that was old school, they're not going to try that again, and here it comes. Time for peace, I swear it's not too late. And we're back to it again. But suddenly, suddenly, something happens. Because when he says almost the exact same thing in verse, thir- in verse 15, he's not wearing the mask of the humanist, he's speaking with the voice of faith. Listen to the difference, I'm going to read them back to back. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there's nothing new under the sun. Verse 15, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. There's faith in this statement. Well, what does that mean? God seeks what has passed by. It means God doesn't miss a thing. Nothing gets by Him. He, he doesn't overlook anything. And so the severity of hopelessness in the doctrine of secular humanism becomes not the severity of hopelessness, it becomes the security of hope. Because faith in a God who doesn't miss anything suddenly takes hopelessness and turns it into hope. Hope. What's the difference between that severity of hopelessness and the security of hope? It's one word, game, It's faith. It is faith. The Hebrew writer says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith changes the story. Faith suddenly takes a hopeless person and fills them with hope. Because without faith, hope is emptiness. Without faith, hope truly is blind. You know, I'm just hoping against hope that something's going to change in this world. Hoping against hope... That, you know, it's a time for peace. And yet, hope without faith is empty. Paul says in Romans 8.24, In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. Hoping for what we do not see is faith. And faith is what changes verse 9 into verse 15, realizing that yes, everything spins, yes, everything's on this cycle, yes, everything is somewhat repeatable, and yet God doesn't miss a thing. He sees it all. He's aware of what was past. He's aware of what is present. He is aware of what's to come. God doesn't miss it. And so hope suddenly becomes injected with faith and severity becomes security. Security. So what's the problem with humanity? I mean, if it's that simple, to go from verse 9 to verse 15, if all we need is a little injection of faith, what's the problem? Why can't we get there as human beings? Kohalath will explain as he slides the mask back down over his face and continues in verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness... There is wickedness. It's one of the most often proclaimed cries of the humanist against faith in God. Is that verse right there. The humanist will say, Wickedness? Injustice in the world? How can you say there's a God? If there's all this evil in the world... You know, I've shared recently, in a recent study, I don't think this is a question that we Christians should shun. I think it's one we need to turn back around on the world. Okay, let's just set the issue of God aside for a moment and ask this question. If you really think that man can self-actualize and self-realize and become better, why is there so much evil in this world? Why are we not better now than we were ten years ago or hundred years ago or a thousand years ago? Why, if the self-actualization of man is the epic of your creed, why can't you get there? And I'll tell you why. It's because of man. It's because of us. We are the cause. And you know this. Christians, you know. Evil, wickedness, injustice, hatred, bitterness, oppression, all these things in the world. Why? Because man is beastly. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. He's indicating judgment. He goes on, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. They're beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath That word breath, ruach, spirit. And there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? That's really interesting to me. The questions beg, even plead, to be answered. Who knows? Who knows what's going to come next? Who can fairly and rightly judge the future of mankind? And the answer is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Who said in John 5.22, "...not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death and into life. Jesus is the judge who took the penalty for those of us who were the plaintiffs. For those of us who are the convicted, the judge came down from His throne and took our place. And he says, For anybody who puts their faith in me, anyone who believes in me, your judgment's over. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is the judge. Now, life itself, going back over these verses, he says in verse 18, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Well, life is a test. Life is a test. But before we consider that, understand Kohala gives his answer for the reason of all the wickedness in the world and it is the beastliness of mankind. You know what's ironic? Kohala says there's no difference between man and beast and that's exactly what we hear a lot in secular circles today. There's no difference between man and beast. The dog is my brother. The eagle I'm related to. So next time you say, well, the problem of sin in the world is because of man's beastliness and and someone from a secular perspective says, how can you say that? Say, well, don't you believe that? Don't you believe that you came from an ape? So if I say your behavior is a little apish, doesn't that make sense? You're going a little bananas. Don't you see what I'm saying here? You're the gorilla of my dreams. You know... It's what they say, and it, it cracks me up, because they they now... And, and please, when I say them, I'm, I'm really not meaning to to just make fun of or or try to say, that's them, and we're us, and they're them. No, we need to understand, and the whole point of taking this angle in looking in the book of Ecclesiastes is so that we have understanding for the secular humanist, for the non-believing per- person in this world, so we get their language. And so with their language, like Kohalath, we can... We can speak it, bringing them to Christ. That's the point. It's compassion and love. But that being said, it's the beastliness of man. And Daniel saw it. Daniel saw it. In Daniel chapter 7, he has a great vision. He has a vision, and it frightens him. A vision of four beasts, a lion with wings on its back, and a big bear with three ribs in its mouth, and and a leopard with several wings on its back, and an iron-toothed beast with ten horns, out of which comes a little horn. It's really a freaky vision. But we know, looking back, that it was a vision of four nations. Four nations, Babylon, the lion, and the bear being Medo-Persia, and the leopard being Greece, and finally the iron-toothed beast being Rome, and something beyond that that I won't get into tonight. But Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of the same four nations, but it's so interesting to see the difference. Daniel, when he got the vision in Daniel chapter seven, saw four beasts. Nebuchadnezzar, when he had the dream of the same four nations, saw a great statue. Monument to man. The golden head and the, the silver arms, you know, the bronze belly and the and the iron legs, and then the feet of clay and iron mixed. And he saw that. And in fact, sixteen years later, after Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, you know what he did? he built himself a huge monument to man. A massive statue of gold 90 feet high by 9 feet in width. And he called on all the people of Babylon, worship the statue, bow down before the monument to man. You see, that's the difference. Man, When man looks at man, when man looks at the nations, he sees monuments of greatness. When God looks at the nations, he sees beasts. Because the world is beastly. And that's the reason for oppression and wickedness and evil in the world is the beastliness in the sin nature of man. In verse 21, the question asked Who knows that the breath or spirit of man ascends upward and the breath or spirit of the beast descends downward to the earth? What's he saying? He's saying, Who knows which way the spirit goes? Who knows if your spirit's going to ascend like the Son of Man? Who knows if your spirit's going to descend like the beasts of the earth? Who knows this? Well, you know. I know. Who knows? Verse 22, the question at the end there, who will bring him, who will bring man to see what will occur after him? Who's going to bring him to see these things? We know the answer to both these questions. We've already talked about the judge, Jesus Christ. However, Kohalath, ever the guiding preacher, Pulling his audience in leaves them hanging. He asks the questions. He doesn't immediately give the answers. So let's read on. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Thank you, George Bailey.
1: That's
0: the whole premise of It's a Wonderful Life. It would have been better if I had never been born. And people say that. I wish I had just never been born or I wish I was dead. The issue the preacher raises in this whole passage is the sin of man. And he reaches an epic despair. That the world is so evil and the world is so wicked and there's so much oppression that he makes a statement that has been cried out more than once in this world, I'd be better off dead than having to live in this world. Or again, some would say, oh, that I had never existed. And it's not the first time this sentiment has been spoken in Scripture. Turn in your Bibles back a few pages the beginning of the wisdom literature, the book of Job, chapter 3. Job chapter 3. You know the story of Job. He had it all and he lost it all. And in his despair, he is in a very hard place. And in chapter 3 it says, afterward Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a boy is conceived. He goes back prior to the day of his birth to the night of his conception. And says, may that night have never happened. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it like a cloud settle. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that, that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter into it. Skip down a little bit further. Verse 11, he says, and he's just, he's just wailing here in his pain. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. This is a great deceit. It's a great deceit of many people who would give up on life and just say, I just would rather close my eyes and sleep. You're not going to sleep. You will go straight to the, to the face to be dealt with by God. You don't just sleep. And the idea of soul sleep is a bogus idea. And the idea of suicide being a glamorous way to just drift off is not true. And I won't get into that. But this is what Job is thinking. He's he's suicidal. With kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, he says, or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. And Job says, there's no evil there. Just peace. And just rest. And that's all I really want. Listen. Back to Ecclesiastes. What Job misunderstood in his pain and his anguish and sorrow, but what the preacher drives home is very simply this. Life is a series of tests. You are being tested throughout your life. And there are two ways that this works. Life is a series of tests. Back in verse 18 of chapter 3, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. And so the first reason for the testing in life is to open our eyes literally to magnify sin and amplify wickedness. Before someone comes to a place of faith, the Lord begins to test And the tests are designed, again, to magnify sin and amplify wickedness. Back in Genesis chapter 3, people say, why was there the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? It was a test. A test that would magnify the sin nature of man. And we've talked about before how they had one law to keep. Just one. Not 613 like Israel. Not 2,500 (laughs) pages like the regulate, regulatory book in the United States of America these days. Just one law. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Everything else is yours. Take it, eat it, enjoy it, frolic in it, but don't eat the fruit of that one tree. That's the only law. Why was it there at all? People ask that. Why did God even put the tree in the garden? A test. And the test was to show that man would sin. It was to prove to mankind exactly what Kohala says. He has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are beasts. Why would He do that? It seems kind of unfair. God puts the test in the garden. They fail the test. He doesn't give them a second chance. He kicks them out of the garden. He drives them out. Why? Listen. The reason why God had to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden was because in the garden... Grace came easy. In the garden, everything was there for them. In the garden, God was present. In the garden, everything was grace. So why would we need grace? It's easy here. God drove them out of the garden, following their sin, into the harshness and the difficulty of The thorns and the thistles of this world, so that man might begin to hunger for grace. They would long for what they could not have. And so God magnifies sin, amplifies wickedness, and it's purposeful. These tests that happen in our lives are purposeful to reveal to us our very nature. I am a sinner. I am in need. I need grace. And then the Lord raised the stakes even higher by bringing in the law. It wasn't enough that one law was violated. He said, let me me make it more clear because you're not getting it. (laughs) Let me bring some more tests. Paul said in Romans 5.20, the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned, reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And John would later say, for the law was given through Moses' grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. So God kicks him out of the garden. Life's tough. Grace is difficult. But then he amplifies it even more with the law to show them, look at, look at how desperate you really are. And when we see that we are beastly, we have one of two choices. We can either just succumb to our beastliness or we can run for His grace. And that's the call that He puts out for all people. So why then do I keep getting tested? Because I've given my life to Jesus. Well, that's the second reason for the series of tests in life. As we walk with Jesus in this world, learning to live, as we talked about Sunday, in His immediate personal presence, every test now is to purify the soul and sanctify the heart. Before I walked with Jesus, every test was to magnify sin and amplify wickedness so that I would come to Jesus. And now that I'm in Jesus, now that I've got the relationship with Jesus, He is testing me. He is literally proving me, purifying me, sanctifying me. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 1.6, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you say that with honesty? You have not seen him. But don't you love him? I haven't seen him. But I love Him. There's something even about the name of Jesus. When I hear His name spoken, it love wells up. We love Him. And though we do not see Him now, but believe in Him, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So what happens is the grace of God in Jesus changes everything so that even the tests in life now are not beastly in purpose, but are beautiful in purpose. Remember, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And so, brothers and sisters, Christians, if you're being tested, if you're struggling, if life is hard, guess what? You're being purified. He is making you more beautiful than you ever could have imagined. You know, I guess you could say paradoxically we are better off dead. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, Romans 6:11, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.10 if Christ is in you though the body is dead because of sin yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness 1 Corinthians 15.22 as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive and Ephesians 2.4 and 5 God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved man I am better off dead dead to sin, alive to Christ. So understand that. The harsh realities of life, the tests that are there, will either magnify sin or they will purify the sinner who dies to self. And that's the purpose for them. Now, verse 4 of chapter 4. Kohalath turns to a familiar topic. He's going to shift gears a little bit. you know, And, and again, it's wonderful because he leads... He leads the listener down a certain path, gets us hanging on every word, takes us right to the place of despair, and then he changes gears. Goes another way, holding our attention. And he says in verse 4, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. He's about to go back into labor. And talk about the work of man. And he's going to destri- describe five attitudes of labor here. Three of them are positive, or three are negative, two are positive. And the first one is negative. Every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry. So the first attitude toward labor is the competitor. The competitor. And it's not just keeping up with the Joneses, it's beating the Joneses. It's surpassing them. It's the attitude of one-upmanship. And Kohaleth rightly says it's one of the big problems in the world is competition. And it drives so much of the greed in life. James put it this way James chapter four, verse one What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage or is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask the competitor. I have seen this. The rivalry among people in the workplace. And he says it's bogus. It's vain. It's a striving after the wind. But rather than compete, some prefer to sit on the sidelines. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh so the second attitude toward labor is the complacent the complacent and we've seen this lazy attitude of folding the hands before proverbs chapter 6 verse 10 a little sleep little slumber little folding of the hands to rest and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man it's interesting he puts these two back to back, the competitor and the complacent, because complacency tends to be a reaction to competition among some people. They see that it gets a little hard and they just back off. They see it getting a little tough and they sit back and refuse to play. But Kohalis says, hey, while competition might not be the best move, complacency is no better. In fact, it is self-consuming. Laziness is self-consuming. Kidner writes this, His idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is. Complacency erodes self-control, a grasp of reality, capacity for care, and in the end, it erodes self-respect. So, Kohala says the answer to the rivalry, the sinful rivalry of mankind, is not to disengage, but rather to develop the third attitude. And this is the first positive one in our list. Verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. And he is talking about number three, the contented. The contented. Don't rage in rivalry. Don't disengage from life. Just be content. Be thankful for what you have, for where you are, for the place that God has you in these days. You know, I, I mean, have you seen, have you noticed how often contentment comes up in our Bible studies? It's not because I'm striving for contentment. It just happens to be talked about a lot in Scripture. The Bible continues to come back to this theme, and I think it's because among so many people, we, we struggle with it. We have a difficult time just being at peace with what we have. With where God has us. And with who we are. Be content. And not only does the Bible talk about it a lot because we need it and it's good for the heart, but because it is one of the number one character traits of Jesus Christ. I don't know, well I know, there has never been a more content man to walk the face of the earth. Jesus was at perfect peace. He was never hurried, never rushed, Never freaked out. He knew the times. John 13 tells us he knew the time. He was completely aware of everything going on, of all that was happening around him. He knew and he moved with purpose and clear intent and meaning in everything he did. And I want that. I want the contentment of Christ. Christ, who said in Matthew 6, don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing. He said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. He said, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you got the competitor and the complacent, and you have the content. But we come to another attitude of labor. This one, again, negative, and that is the compulsive. The compulsive, verse 7. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. It's the person who loses perspective, and suddenly they're laboring for the sake of the labor. It's the man who is up early, home late, irrespective of family, friends, or loved ones. And note this. This man is utterly alone. He's described as having no dependent, neither son nor a brother. He's all alone. And I wonder, and I'm reading into this, because I, I think Kohalath is just drawing a picture here for us. I don't know that he's thinking of someone specifically or not. But this person may have had a wife and kids. You've seen, I've seen families torn apart by a workaholic, by the husband who's never home, by the wife who is too wrapped up in what she's doing outside of the house. What starts off so often as a labor of love becomes a love of labor, and it's deadly. I was talking to my dad actually a few years ago now, around the time of his retirement. He worked at McDonnell Douglas uh, in, in the engineering department there for over 30 years. 30 years, which you know, in, in my generation, that's just weird. No one stays at a job more than, you know, three years. Come on. <laughs> 30 years. And at the end of this, he was retiring. I was talking to my dad. I said, Dad, what? Did you love your job? Not really. <laughs> 30 years? <laughs> and you didn't love your job? No, not really. Why'd you do it, Dad? And I'll never forget his answer for our family. He said, every hour of work I put in, our evenings, our weekends together, the opportunities for you boys to, to have music lessons and be in sports and do all the things that you did and for us to go on the, the family trips that we did, that, that's why I did it. I'm like, wow. And I thank God for my dad. That's a right perspective. He worked hard, but he never lost perspective as to what was important. His family mattered most. And all the and by the way, in those 30 plus years, he gave up opportunities. He could have moved our family seven, eight times and gone right up the ladder and made a ton of money. And he said, no, I want to be secure for my kids. And we stayed in one place. So again, a labor of love or a love of labor. Labor, it's a sad futility to end up compulsive like this. Kind of like Scrooge. You know, alone in his counting house. pounding out his money. And there's no one but him. But there's a fifth attitude which brings value and meaning to our labor, something my dad understood, and it is the companion. The companion, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him out. Jesus knew this. He understood this. When He sent out the apostles, He sent them out two by two. When He sent out the 70, they went out in twos. Jesus was very big on going out together. Very big on companionship. Very big on loving each other and supporting and encouraging each other. He knew we needed it. Furthermore, verse 11, If two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And the preacher says, hey, if two are better than one, three are better still. But it's very specific who that third person is. That third person is Jesus. Any two people in a relationship that is bound up together with Jesus at the center are stronger than any two people in the world. A cord of three strands... You and me and Jesus. This is often used, this section of Scripture, in marriages, in weddings. And it's a good word for the context of marriage. A strong, binding love. Between two is a good thing. It's a better thing when Jesus is at the center. Husband and wife bound together with Christ are not quickly or easily torn apart. It's a wonderful passage for a fellowship of believers. Mm Mm-hmm. To recognize the presence of Jesus in their midst. The presence of Christ. That's why it's such a big deal that we are aware of His being here. When Spencer and I sit down together to pray, it's not Spencer and I praying. It's Spencer and Rick and Jesus. And we are stronger for it. Where two or three are gathered together, he said, In my name, I'm there in their midst. And that's the key, in my name. It's not gathered together for punch and cookies. It's gathered together for the sake of Jesus. For Jesus who is there, who is present. Marriages divide. Churches divide. People divide. Where Jesus is either ignored or forgotten. I've been asked, Rick, what is the the best way for the British Christian Fellowship to grow and to remain unified? And I'll give you the one-word answer, Jesus. As long as we know Jesus is present in all of our togetherness, we will not divide. But when we forget Him, if we ignore Him, if we become about us, this church is in the same danger that so many churches are in, and that's the danger of division, a cord of three strands with Jesus as the center strand. Kohalath asked the question, what's it going to be for you in your life of labor? Competitor? Complacent? contented?" Compulsive or companion. Here's the best prescription. A contented companion in accord with Christ. Okay. Now he changes gears again. This is interesting. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king. Even though he was born poor in his kingdom, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the sides of the se- or to the side of the second lad, who replaces him. There's no end to all the people to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with them, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Who's he talking about? That was the first thought that came into my mind. I'm reading this, going, is is Kohalif describing someone in his a contemporary of his or someone? from his time of writing maybe there was a king among the nations that solomon was familiar with that he knew about who who began as a poor boy but then became a great king and forgot his poverty maybe he's talking about saul saul who started out you know with some promise when he was chosen by the people he's all the people's choice for king but boy, he began with, with... There was some promise there. Good looking guy, strong guy, tall guy, bigger than most of the Israelites and, and had some moments of bravery early on, but it, it fell into foolish arrogance and jealousy. I wonder if Kohalath, Solomon, I wonder if he's talking about his father David, perhaps. Well, David was never in prison. Well, the word for prison... Back there in verse 14, he's come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. Prison is an interesting word. It can also mean uh, come out of binds or being bound or he came out of a difficult position. He came out of being cornered, which David was. David spent 10 years running for his life from Saul only then to rise up as one of Israel's greatest kings. And David as an old, old man was kind of teetering on you know talked about some timers you know he wasn't quite aware it in fact Bathsheba had to come to him you remember the story and say one of your sons is trying to usurp the throne and you said it was going to be Solomon you got to move on this oh okay and and he establishes Solomon as king so maybe kohaleth is talking about David here but the portrait is not meant to be personal as much as instructional. And what he's saying is he's warning against a person becoming wise in their own eyes. He's warning against especially, and listen up, those of you who are advancing in years, he says, especially as you get older, be careful that you become wise in your own eyes. Be careful that you ever reach that point where you feel like you've pretty much got it where learning and instruction and it's nobody here tonight or you wouldn't be here tonight. He's talking about the person who skips out on Wednesday night, really. (laughs) They're sitting home, you know, watching Oprah reruns and going, yeah, I got the answer, you know. (laughs) Proverbs 26.12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So how do I become or, or avoid becoming this way? You know, I'd like to grow in my faith in Jesus, but also grow in my desire to be a student. I want to be a student my whole life. I want to be learning to the last breath or the rapture, which will happen first, I hope. I want to always be open to instruction and learning and new things and excited about truth, regardless of who brings it. I'll tell you who's been teaching me some things lately is Jake, of all people. <laughs> Not only is he half my age, but he's Jake. And he's a bright guy. And he knows Jesus, and he's shared some things with me. He's, he's very in tune with a lot of things going on in, in the Arab world. And we've had some great conversations about that. And so I'm learning from it. How do we avoid becoming the vain foolish old man or the vain foolish old woman who's wise in her own eyes and unable to receive instruction? And it's very simple. Look at verse 15. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Here's the deal. Be the second lad. Be the second lad. Huh? Replace the old foolish king of your life with a new living servant. Be the second lad. Or ladies, be the second lassie. (laughs) Not implying the dog. Lads and lassies. You know what I'm saying. John 3. Here's what I mean. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that's the key. Be the second lad. Be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again, Jesus says. Now, I know that I'm primarily talking to a group of second lads and lassies, okay? That primarily here on Wednesday night, you have all been born again. And you might say, yeah, and you're kind of recovering ground that we've covered. Listen, born again believers in Jesus, I recover this because we've got to understand new birth. The idea of being born again is our best and only answer to the hopelessness of the postmodern world this is the message we have for people your life's not working out you've been going down this road you know what you need a new life that's what you need new life I'd love a new life you need a do-over I would love a do-over you need to be a second man how do I do that? be born again it works (laughs) every time (laughs) it worked for me And you know that. And if you are born again into a living and real relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the message. It is the number one thing to tell a secular humanist who already knows their life right now isn't working. You need to be born again. It answers the futility of humanism with the living hope. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the answer to futility. Being born again. Starts us all over fresh and new and eternal in Jesus Christ. Well... We can do chapter 5. I'm going to let Spencer decide. Should we do chapter 5? Of course. Okay. So, the first... He's my ringer. I knew he'd say that. We're going to take the first seven verses of chapter 5 and look at them on Sunday. After that, it moves by pretty quickly. So watch this. Verse 8 combines the vanity of self-impressed rulers and the oppression of people. Puts it all together in one fell swoop. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. What's he saying? One word, bureaucracy. (laughs) Bureaucracy, it doesn't work. Government is corrupt, because where one human being is watching over another human being, who's watching over another human being, accountability is futile. Which is why when we look at the bureaucracies and the waste of money and all the stuff in government today, when you, if you rail at government, that's why. Because man cannot keep man accountable where Christ is not in the picture. And it's silliness to think that we can do so. Government is corrupt because it's all people who are corrupt. How can we think that there will be true accountability or justice or equity or fairness or of all things righteousness where those in charge are beasts. Beastly mankind. Now, I I pause to mention this because I've been asked several times about the accountability of leadership at the bridge. And people ask me back when we first started, how can you just start a church? Well, (laughs) we said we'll meet Sunday morning and people showed up. (laughs) No. Well, what's your game plan? We didn't have one. Where are you going to meet? Well, living room. (laughs) <laughs> People ask the question, yeah, but what about your accountability? You are not planted by another church. You're not accountable to anyone. I'm like, Yeah, we are. We're accountable to God. And I guarantee you, if, if we're not focused on the things of God, this is going to fail. It will fail miserably. Now, when we first started our first Bible study, I asked two men to be elders, to be shepherds, before we even began, so that I would be under the accountability of two brothers in Christ. But the key is, in Christ. That I would have that connection. And we've continued that. And we have a number of shepherds now. But you know, even with that, we're all, we have a tendency to be a little beastly from time to time. As an independent fellowship, we have got to always remember our accountability is first and foremost to the Lord. My accountability as a senior teaching pastor is to the Lord first. And you know what? I may be able to go years hiding things and sinning secretly but it will come out and eventually God is going to call me to account for it and I will have to deal with Him and in every church situation that's the way it is you might say well I know that church is corrupt hey give it time it'll fall give it time the corruption will come out especially in churches but even in governments the Lord lets it go a certain distance and whether man is paying attention or not eventually God says enough done because everything's accountable to Him, with whom we have to do, the Hebrew writer says. What denominational board was your early church responsible to? The board of God.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, should we just toss the whole idea of, of, of government? Because you know, governments can't really be accountable one man to another. No. Should we go back to the days of the wandering nomad? Well that didn't work out very well either. So verse 9, Kohala says after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. At least he's cultivating the field. He may be corrupt, but at least there's some kind of leadership. And Paul said in Romans 13, 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So sad to say, even a corrupt government is better than no government at all. Now, the latter half of chapter 5 can be divided into three brief sections. The cash... The crash and the stash. Okay? Here we go. The cash. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? And I would add the word dumbly. (laughs) Because it's so true, isn't it? The more money you have, the more ways you find to spend that money, and the more you need more money to cover your habits and the things that you're doing and and into. I could make $250,000 a week, and I'm just here to tell you, wouldn't be enough. (laughs) I'd find a way to spend it. So the cash. The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Why? Because he's worried about his cash. He's worried about the income. Yeah, but he's rich, yeah. He's got more to worry about. The cash. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, 23. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I love how we try to water down Scripture and say, now, the camel being obviously large and the eye of a needle being small, the eye of a needle actually is the entrance gate to a city which the camel had to duck down to go into. So it's not really talking about, no, no, I think Jesus is talking about the eye of a needle. Because the point is the impossibility of it. And his Jewish apostles, who in that day believed that riches was a sign of righteousness, said, if a rich man can't enter heaven, who can? And Jesus says, oh, well, yeah, with man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. Which is cool, it means even a rich dude can go to heaven. 1 <laughs> Timothy 6.8 says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be, and we're back to the word, content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And sad to say, I have seen it happen to a close friend. I watched a close friend go right down the tubes because of the desire for riches. I wish it wasn't the case, but it's true. And I'm counseling with Spencer to try and pull him out of it. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. No, sit down. Sit down. <laughs> it's just human nature to want more and more and never to be satisfied. Listen, thank God he limits what we have. Thank God he has put a cap on your income, whatever it is. And I've shared with you before, God knows each one of us precisely. And knows what we can handle and what we can't. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, but he makes more than me. Yeah, that's because you can't handle it. You are where God has you, and it's for a reason. Be content. Be happy to be there. Because too much of the cash leads to the crash. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment or a Ponzi scheme, I'm sorry, I added that. (laughs) Through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, Then there was nothing to support him. And he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil from the secular humanist perspective. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. You're naked coming in, you're naked going out. What is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Or, again, labor for the sake of labor. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. And it's the crash. Again, we hear Job in this. Job, who said, actually with faith, said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen, if you happen to be blessed financially and you lose it all, My prayer for you is that You will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it's from Him and it goes to Him. It's His call. Where we stand. What we have. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the the famous uh, founder of the China Inland Mission. Back 1865 through the early 1900s, he he went to China. And as a young man, he knew he was supposed to go to China. But before he did, and it's marvelous, he determined to start living life in England the way he thought he might have to live in China. So he started denying himself things. He could have lived with a rich relative while he was working for a doctor in London. Instead, he decided to live in an area called Drainside, which was a shanty town along a, a... Garbage-infested river, a little one-room place. For his meals, he learned that if he ate rice primarily and oatmeal, he could save a lot of money. And the more money he saved, he could then spend on uh, blessing people in poverty around him. And he started to live this way. But one day, and he had a deal with with the Lord. He prayed. His his boss, who was a doctor, um, told him, "You're going to have to remind me when it's time each month for me to give you your monthly salary." Which most of which he was given away anyway. you got to remind me at those times because I'll forget and you you won't get paid. So you need to remind me. Well, Hudson Taylor said, Lord, I'm going to pray that you remind him so that I will trust you rather than trusting my boss to pay me. So that was his prayer, that the Lord would remind his boss. Well, payday came and went, and he didn't get paid. It was okay. He had a little left, a little saved, but a week went by, and two weeks, two and a half weeks... And he was running out of money. He got down to having a single uh, sovereign in his pocket. Now, I don't know how the British, I don't know how the money works, so I may get this part wrong. But he had a single sovereign, the equivalent of about a dollar, in his pocket. He had enough food at home for water gruel for dinner and some water gruel for breakfast the next morning. So he knew he was covered food wise at least till the next day, but he wouldn't have enough for any food for the next evening, and his rent was going to be due a couple of days later. He's walking home. It was a Sunday, beautiful, wonderful day. He, he describes it as being with the Lord and, and being in, in fellowship with Christians and then serving the poor and just kind of skipping along on his way back to his tiny little hovel and a poor man reads him on the road and asks if he would come pray for his wife who's dying. And uh, he, he detects by the Irish accent, this guy must be Catholic. Well, why don't you call your priest to come and pray for your wife? Because the priest wants uh, 16 shillings to come pray and won't come unless I pay him. So Hudson Taylor says, all right, I'll go. And he goes. And he gets to the house, and the description is tragic. Several children who are literally skeletons, they're so hungry. Their bellies, you know, puffed out because of starvation. The mother is lying on a pallet in the corner of the room, and she's in horrible shape. And all Hudson Taylor can think about is the sovereign in his pocket. And he's there to pray for the woman, and he can't even pray. He's talking with them, but he's he's so torn up because in his mind he's going, "Lord, don't ask me to give up the sovereign. You're not. No, I can't." And he says in in his memoirs, he says, "You know." I had faith in God. I just didn't have faith in God minus a sovereign. (laughs) I read that and went, that's beautiful. I have faith in God, just not minus, you know, ten bucks that I need for my lunch today. And he's thinking this through and thinking, okay, well, if if I give them this, I'll have dinner tonight and breakfast in the morning, and then I'm done. And my rent's coming due, and I have no money for food, and my boss hasn't paid me. Obviously, he's forgotten. I'm in trouble here. I'm in deep financial trouble. And he struggles and struggles and struggles and struggles with this. Finally, long story short, he ends up pulling it out and he gives the whole thing to them. And he says the moment he did that, everything cleared. He could pray. He was full of the joy of the Holy Spirit. He was happy. Everything was peace. He wasn't worried at all. And he prayed for the woman. The woman was healed, got better. The family survived. And Hudson Taylor went back to work the next day and his boss forgot to pay him again. And so he goes home and he doesn't have dinner. And now rent's due, and he is really struggling because he wants to pay rent so he can honor that, but he doesn't want to ask his boss for his salary, which is due him because he's asked the Lord. He's praying to the Lord to tell his boss. So he's in a pickle. Finally, his boss goes, wasn't I supposed to pay you? It's like the next day he says, yes! Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And then his boss goes, oh, wow, I'm not going to be able to pay you um, until tomorrow because all the the money was already sent off to the bank. (laughs) So he has to go home and tell his landlady he can't pay the rent. And then at 10 o'clock, 10 p.m., they're about to close up this doctor's office where he was interning. And a rich man comes in who is a patient of the doctor, and says, hey, um, I'm sorry, I know it's late, but I just couldn't get this off my mind. I've got to pay my bill and I'd just like to pay it now. And it was exactly Husband Taylor's salary. And he took it home and he paid his rent and he had his dinner. I don't think I've ever lived like that. I don't think I've ever gone to the very end of money for faith in God. No wonder the China Inland Mission was one of the greatest missionary efforts in the history of the world. Countless thousands of Chinese came to the Lord because one man, Hudson Taylor, went there with that kind of faith. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The cash, the crash. But keeping with the secular perspective, we end Kohaleth answers the cash and the crash with this, and don't miss what he's saying here, it's interesting, the stash. Verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. So he's saying, humanist, you don't even have to believe in Jesus. You have a reward. You have a special gift from God in that he has blessed you so that you can enjoy the fruit of your labor. Praise God for that, even if you don't believe or you believe that he's some distant being. At least recognize He is blessing you. Verse 20, For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What? are you saying That, Huh? Are you saying God distracts man from considering his life and coming to faith? That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying there in verse 20, listen to verse 20 again, He will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What he's saying is that God enables man, believer or not, to enjoy life. And this is a gift. The secular humanist mask is on. So we're not even dealing with eternity yet. We're just dealing with life. And he says, don't you realize in your humanism that what you enjoy, you enjoy because there's a God who has gifted you to enjoy it? Even this is a gift those pleasant distractions from the futility of life, even those are a gift of God's grace. But there is an underlying question here. The preacher doesn't speak aloud, but it's surreptitiously raised, and that is, what kind of reward are you looking for? You can have a reward in life, but it's transitory and temporary. And I'll give you a little hint in chapter 6. We won't deal with it tonight he's going to say but there are those who work hard and get great riches and then can't enjoy them don't even get the reward for that what kind of reward are you looking for isaiah 62 verse 11 the lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth say to the daughter of zion lo your salvation comes behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him and jesus says in revelation 22:12 behold i'm coming quickly my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done And that's our secure hope in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus, You are so good to us. God, Your goodness goes out to the ends of the earth. You bless people who don't know You. You bless people who reject You. You give grace and good things and, and rewards within this life, even to those who have not chosen You. And it is because, God, You are so good. It is in all of Your goodness that we receive any blessing. And we recognize, Lord, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. But Lord, it is not the rewards in this life that we long for. It is the great reward of Jesus. In fact, Jesus, it's not even the the reward that You bring with You as much as You and Your coming. That is our great reward. We long for You. We look forward to You. Father, bless us with faith and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.